You're listening to the She Lift Project podcast, a show dedicated to helping women achieve higher levels of success in the workplace. No matter where you are in your career, we want to help you grow. Now here's your host, Cynthia Kirkpatrick, a CPA, CFP, and Senior Financial Advisor at Mineta Group. Hello and welcome to another episode of the SheLift Project Podcast. I'm Cynthia Kirkpatrick and I'm happy to have you with us. Have you ever known a person who commands a room with confidence, strength, intellect, power, yet a softness and concern for others? We're so excited to have one of those people with us today, Jackie Kinder. Jackie is a trial attorney who has tried over 35 cases to juries in courtrooms throughout the states of Missouri and Illinois. After law school, she clerked for a judge on the Missouri Court of Appeals before starting her career defending businesses and individuals in civil disputes. She's a founder and partner at the new law firm of Waters, Wolf, Bub, and Hansman LLC, and she has many exciting stories to share. So welcome, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on this uh, early Monday morning. So before we dive into how do we get to this spot and where you're at today, um, meaning exactly today, tell me about the new law firm and what you do. So the new law firm is a spinoff of one of the oldest insurance defense firms in the city of St. Louis, which was Brown and James. Brown and James was founded in the 70s, I believe, and the managing partner of the new law firm, Russ Waters, was a founder of Brown and James. And there are multiple insurance defense firms in the size of 100 to 150 lawyers in the city of St. Louis. Brown and James was probably the only one left that hadn't broken up after 30 plus years. So when we left, there were six of us who left. We took um, 37 lawyers with us. We really um, cut that law firm in half. So in terms of legal news, it was kind of a big deal. Um, It wasn't just a few people leaving. So the impetus behind it was a very uh, was a very professional split um, was that the firm had been operating for many years as two separate firms anyway we were getting ready to sign a new lease and as one of the topics that people talk about all the time we didn't want to be in the city of st louis anymore Um, i have been down there for 20 years and i've been there when it was bad and then it got better and then it got bad and we were just at a point where, well, we have to sign in another 10-year lease. Do we really want to be down in the city? And the way our practices shifted and changed, you know, when I was a young lawyer, I was walking over to the courthouse every single day. Now with WebEx and Zoom and the volume of our practice spreading out throughout the state of Missouri, there was just not that need to be in the city of St. Louis. In fact, you know, you'd like to have this nice office in the city that looks over the arch or the stadium and then you call your clients and they say, can we meet somewhere else? Because they don't want to come down there. So that was really the basis behind it. The timing was due to the lease issues and we were just ready to kind of do something new. So... So tell me about, you mentioned one of the longest, oldest law firms, liability law firms. Sure. Tell me about your process into uh, deciding to become an attorney, uh, how you got sure. to that law firm, became partner there, Sure. Uh, that struggle, challenges, uh, so positive. I'm the, the only and first lawyer in my family, and I knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in about seventh grade. I don't, <laughs> how? I don't know. I think I like to watch shows or whatever, and I have... Um, I always joke, I have three brothers. If I had three sisters, I'd probably be a teacher. But I had to uh, argue my way through life to get what what I thought was I was due as one of four with three brothers, two older, one younger. So, um, and then I, I went to the University of Missouri and... Still had the plan to go to law school, but at that time, I think the University of Missouri was number one in journalism, so I decided to go to the journalism school. Um, 
And as I went through the journalism school, I still decided to do to keep on my path to go to law school. And probably I tell young lawyers this all the time. Anyone who wants to go to law school, journalism is the best, um, I think, preparation for law school because it teaches you how to write. Um, I graduated fairly high in my law school class, but not reflective of my intelligence level compared to others. I think it's because I'm a good writer. So, you know, you can be super smart, but if you, it's hard for you to write, it's hard to be successful in this profession, no matter what you do, whether you're a litigator or a corporate lawyer or any type of law. So, um, yeah, that just never changed. And then I went to um, the University of um, SLU for law school. Um, and I was actually talking to a friend about this yesterday. I was offered a full ride to the University of Tulsa Law School. And I remember I didn't take it. And one of the reasons why was my mom said she was afraid that I would find a guy in Tulsa and never come back to St. Louis. <laughs> but then I talked to some lawyers and they said, if you really want to practice in St. Louis, going to SLU is the place to go. So um, I went to SLU and then I clerked on the Court of Appeals for a year, which the judge that I clerked for, Judge Kathy Ann Crane, was um, great judge. She's on Eastern District Court of Appeals in Missouri for a long time. She was one of the people that would bring in clerks every year. She didn't have like a life, lifetime clerk like some of the judges do because she liked to train young lawyers on how to write. Um, so I was really lucky to get that. Um, and then after that, I ended up at Brown and James where I stayed for, you know, 20 plus years before we just started this new firm. I was made partner in, I think, 2008 at Brown and James, the youngest female partner of the firm. Um, and then I was made shareholder, I don't know, five years after that. And um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of being the youngest female partner at that firm. And I think Brown and James is a huge firm. It probably had 130 lawyers before we all left. There was, um, I want to say, maybe 15 women. So, and of the shareholders, only three of us when I left. So, um, yeah, so that's how we get here. Well, that's interesting. L lots of questions, lots of places that we can go. But one question that piques my interest. Mm -hmm. Of all the people, lawyers, why so few women, do you think? What's interesting about that, and I think I mentioned to th this to you before, the... Um, I don't know what you call it. The, the numbers in law school are majority women. Over 50% of the people in law school are women. Um, and so I don't know. It's still a very male-dominated industry, but it depends on what you go into. I think um, trial work and what I do, you see less women than you do maybe in a corporate law position Um or court positions like family lawyers or working at the courthouse judges, those kinds of things. I, and I have to assume I don't know. But I mean, it's a difficult, obviously, lifestyle in terms of time and hours. So it's harder. You know, you have to have a very good support system if you have kids. Um, but it's picking up. It's definitely picking up. And in the litigation field, there's a lot more women there than there was when I started, for sure. Um, but we're not anywhere near what you see in the numbers in law school, which is interesting. So where are they all going? I'm not sure. <laughs> right. It'd be interesting to know if they're staying a lawyer right. and going in a different line or if they're altogether exiting mm -hmm. the career field. You talk about, you know, corporate law versus litigation. What's the difference and what does it take? You know, I've heard from many lawyers 
that you're either a litigator or you're not. Like there's mm-hmm. a special skill set to be a litigator. So what do you think skill set wise it takes to be a good litigator that maybe may scare some away from doing it? Oh, certainly. Yeah. So you kind of learn in law school, there's two paths, corporate or litigation. And corporate lawyers typically are in-house. They work for a business or a company. They work on contracts. Um, litigators do what you think they do. I mean, they take depositions, they go to court. Uh, there's different types of litigation. You could be a criminal lawyer. So that means you're in court all the time. If you're a family lawyer, you're in court every single day. A civil litigator, which is what I do, is essentially if I lose, somebody pays money. That's really how we look at it. It's sometimes called personal injury, sometimes it's called torts. Um, but the people that do either the criminal and civil stuff in terms of actual litigation, I think one of the skill sets, you have to have a personality where you like to be in front of people, where you don't, you're not scared to talk in front of people. Um, I've always been that way. I, I don't know. My, I remember my mom telling me this, that my grade school called and said, do you know Jackie reads at mass every week? And my mom had no idea. So um, I just have been that way. And I, you know, my kids are kind of that way. They like to get up in front of people and present and talk. Um, and when we hire people, you know, we have, like at our firm, we've got a cov- what we call a coverage and a writing department. And you can tell those people that they don't want to they don't want to go take a deposition. They don't want to argue with anybody. They don't want to go to court. All they want to do is write. And you see it sometimes in their personality and sometimes it's just what people they enjoy what they enjoy. It's kind of like if you're in business, you're going to pick the person who's the marketer. And then there's somebody who might not be very good at marketing. Maybe they're uncomfortable in social settings. Maybe they don't speak so well to people, but they're very valuable to the business in other ways, kind of back office things. So we do have people who do litigation that don't really litigate. Um, and that's why, you, you know, if you talk to people who say, I, I'm a trial lawyer, okay, ask them if they've ever tried a case. There are so many lawyers who do trial work. You know, essentially what they're doing is filing lawsuits or defending them and working them up, but then they never actually go to trial. And a lot of it's by virtue of the fact that it's super expensive. Insurance companies don't want to pay for it. People don't want to pay for it. Um, You know, I tried a case a few weeks ago. It was a small case. It was worth maybe $50,000. The the defense cost bill was $50,000. So could they have settled that case for less than that? In most cases, yes. So they would do that because it's a business decision. Um, so to get a case to trial just by function of value, it is hard, but then you have to have, there are lawyers who just don't want to do it and they're scared to do it. And so you have to have that kind of personality where, you know, you're not scared to do it. Then when you get there, um, it does take a different, I always tell people it's a little bit of the law. It's a little bit of acting. You know, you're putting on a show for the jury, and there's a lot of evidentiary issues that go into trying a case. Juries don't get to know everything, and people have a hard time understanding that. But there's legal reasons why juries don't get to know all the facts. And um, if they did, they would definitely affect the outcome. An example is insurance. If you have insurance, a jury doesn't get to know that. Um, The reason for that is they don't want to penalize you for having insurance. But if you have insurance, a jury is more likely to give the other side money and find against you. And so while that might be fine, there's now a judgment sitting out there against you that's there for everyone to see. It looks like you did something wrong. And it might just be because, well, they felt bad for this lady and you have insurance, so who cares, right? So that's an example um, 
of one of the things. But yeah, I think you have to have, you just have to have a personality where you're comfortable being in front of people. And usually, I mean, if you interview people, you can tell within a few minutes. And when we hire people, I always say, you'll know in, in three months if this is for you. And the turnover rate for us in our first year is pretty high because they're like, oh, I don't want to do this. And we, we give young lawyers a lot of, of autonomy and experience because we get hired by insurance companies. So I can say, hey, go take a deposition two months after they're licensed. And you can see the fear of God come into their face. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And we're like, we know. Just go do it. There's nothing you can do that's going to screw up the case. My first deposition was of an economist. I was like, I don't, that was like my worst class at Mizzou. Economics, like, I don't. And then I come to find out it's like a standard 15 questions you ask every economist in every lawsuit. So you can be a monkey and go in there and do it. But I was like, you know, I probably prepared for six hours for this deposition that anyone could take. So um, you do that so that the hopes are in two or three years. You're not scared of taking a deposition. You're not scared of going to the courtroom so we can give you some hard stuff where you're going in there and you're ready to roll. So so do you think it's, it's you mentioned, you can tell right away, it's a personality. People mm-hmm. have to be in front, want to be in front of people. Do you think that's an inborn trait or is it something that be, can be either trained into or do we train girls, women to not put this in, themselves out there to not be outside of a box. Right. I don't think we do that. To answer that last question first, I I feel like, I'm trying to think of the women that we've hired. Um, if somebody, it's not always clear right away. You know, it's very intimidating walking into a room and having seven partners sit around saying, oh, tell us what you like to do. And it's like, oh my God, I just want a job, right? Um, I have these student loans right, to pay. Come right. on, give me a job. It, or I remember I was asked, so what makes you want to be a litigator? And my answer was, I, I really don't know if I want to be a litigator because I don't know what that is. And one of the partners said, well, that's a very honest answer. I'm like, you're asking me about something I've never done. I think it, it'll be a good fit. We'll find out. Um, and so I think that's the case with a lot of young people. It's a, I need a job. I'll see what this is about. And then Usually it's at a first review where we have that discussion, unless someone is so reserved that you can just tell they're, you know, they walk in the room, they turn beet red and, you know, that may pop out. But for the most part, I feel like most of the women are willing to do both. And then after about six months, they'll say, well, I really like doing this more than I like doing this. There's some people who say, like, for example, myself, I like to write. I can write a good coverage opinion, but it takes about three or four days and, um, the volume of my practice prevents me from doing that now. But when I was younger, I was like, I want to get out of here. I want to go take a deposition or meet with a witness or go to court. There's some people that are built like I can't sit in this office all day and read and write. Um, And so that is part of it, too. But I don't I, I think to some degree, certainly you're born with your personality traits. But I think you can teach it. You can teach. Now, the question is, can you teach somebody the skill set? to be a good trial lawyer. I don't know. Um, Part of it is by virtue of the people that you learn from. I think, you know, I got, um, I was taught by one of the best trial lawyers in Russ Waters and then Brad Hansman. So I would sit with them through trial and see things, but then a lot of it's instinct that some people just might not have. But in the course of your career, you know, if I have five jury trials in a year, that's a lot. So you can think, you know, for somebody to have 
50 or 35 or 60 in the course of their career. That's a lot just because it's so expensive. So um, you could be very successful as a litigator and probably very rarely go to trial and just do very well. As long as you're willing to do it, you, you should be fine. Because lawyers can kind of, we know who's not going to try a case when we get the case. They're never going to go to trial. Vice versa. Oh, they know they'll try the case. And that drives the value of the case, right? Because if you know the plaintiff's lawyer is never going to try this case because they don't try cases, um, you're probably going to settle it for less than you would somebody who like, okay, he's definitely going to try this case. So we're going to have to pay and probably pay a little more if we don't want to try it. So, um, but I think women are, I, I mean, I feel like the women that I've worked with that have worked for me, they've liked to do litigation. And, you know, you'll lose some, you lose them more to, I want to go work for the Social Security Administration, or I want to do something that's a little bit less pace, slower, you know, just to have a better quality of life, start a family, whatever it might be. And that's obviously true for both sexes, actually. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask. Does that then lead back to your comment earlier about having a good support system as a parent? You, yes, to be able to do what you do mm -hmm. and still be an involved good yes. parent. Yes, for kids with kids, you have to have a spouse or whoever, good grandparents, people that are willing to help. Because if you're in trial, especially, you know, for for the most part, I can adjust my schedule how I want. But when I'm in trial, I'm out. I'm not available to take to school to pick up typically, especially if it's out of town. Um, and so, you know, my kid's dad's great about that. But yeah, it's because you're, but, you know, what if you do sales and you're traveling? It's the same thing. So probably, you know, any professional job as a female, if you're going to have kids, um, you either have to have that balance. I tell my kids all the time to go to dental school. So you get Fridays off. You're off at 4 o'clock. This would be great. If I came back, that's what I would do. Um, but, you know, there's no late nights. Um, you don't have to do anything besides look at teeth if you don't want to. Um but anyway, yeah, so, you know, I think any professional job, you're going to have to have that. So I think it's it's interesting, or as a female, I see this. I've struggled with myself. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the things you did to help get that support? I feel like sometimes as women, it's hard to ask. Like, I always felt like, no, as a woman, as a mom, as a wife, you should have it all together. You should have it all figured out. You shouldn't need to ask. And maybe some of that was myself. But what are some of the things that you asked for or people offered and you accepted that really has made a difference for you to be able to be successful professionally, but also still be successful at home? I think, well, I think the people that are close to you, if you talk to them about what you do, you garner a level of respect where people will reach out and offer to help. A great example of this, my kids are, as you know, older, 13 and 10. I used, typically always have a nanny in the summer. This last summer, my friend reached out, and she's, she stays at home. Two of my friends from high school stay at home, and their kids are around the same age. Our kids have been friends since we were little, and we all go to the same pool. So she reached out to me and she said, you know what, don't get, and it's my nannies are my nieces, just hire your nieces two days a week. The other two days, I'll reach out, you know, my daughter's got a phone, I'll reach out to the kids, I'll pick them up and I'll take them to the pool. So, and my other friend Jenny said the same thing, if we're ever going to the pool, we'll just grab your kids. And then they'll say, we'll bring them home. And it's because they know what I do and they know the demands of the job. And that's in part because I've talked about it and not in the sense of, oh, woe is me, I'm so busy. 
um, more in the sense of people like to hear about your cases or what you're doing. Um, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I said in my career, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, that's kind of what I work on on a daily. So, um, and then, you know, they know when I'm in trial because I'm checked out. I don't meet for dinner. I'm not available. And the time leading up to it, they know when I'm in trial. So people always reach out to me while I'm in trial. How'd the trial go? Did you win? You know, friends, family. So I think, you know, just by talking to people, you get that. To your point about, you know, it is difficult with a spouse, I think, um, my ex-husband and I, but when we were married, I always walked that fine line of never suggesting that my job was more important than his, even though I might have financially been more important to the family than he was. Um, and so, you know, if a kid, if the kids had a doctor's appointment, I did the last one, I would say, okay, you can do this one. I never was like, well, you should do all the doctor's appointments because I have this job. Um, and I think we're just kind of trained that way. If the roles were switched, it'd be like, you're going to take the kids to the doctor, right? Right. <laughs> so, but, um, I, you know, I just never wanted it to be an issue. And so then it, it never really was. Yeah, I think you said a lot of things there. I recently listened to a book, The 8080 Marriage, and it talked about shared success. And I think my husband and I finally figured it out after a long time together that it's it's not about who's above the other, who's doing more at what time. It's what are our goals and values as a couple and a family? And now how do we pour energies into that, knowing that every part is equally important. And I think you brought up a good point there that I think we're in a transition, right, with, with marriages, women in career, women in general of – and you mentioned it. And I, I'm not going to be a complainer or what was me kind of person um, – but how do we ask for that help in a way that, uh, again, it's a partnership? And then how do we show appreciation because we're all in it moving in the same direction versus different lanes? Right, know. right. It's well, and that's the whole point of marriage anyway, right? So, But it's getting your mindset out of traditional roles and figuring out what the roles are for your family. Um, I think, and, and, it's, and it's it's harder on women because we're always trying to do everything. And I remember one of my partners saying something to me one time when I was leaving the office at like four. What are you taking a half day? Like a joke. And I said, oh, no, I said, I got to take the kids to whatever. And he was kind of giving me trouble. And I said, you know what? I don't have a Jenny at home. I'm you and I'm Jenny. And he was like, oh, God. <laughs> I shouldn't have said anything. And I was kind of saying it tongue in cheek, but I was like, you have no idea all the stuff your d wife is doing in the background for your kids. In addition to, you know, what I'm doing here at the office is the same as you. So um, when I made that joke, I mean, he's never said anything again, but, <laughs> so, but it's true. It's like, you know, these guys that have their stay at home wives, they, those they don't know all the stuff they're doing. They assume, oh, I mean, they're taking care of things. But it's it's a full-time job on, in and of itself, as you know. I mean, we have lots of friends that do that. I wrote down, women, we're always trying to do everything. Yeah. Because I think it's, you hit on a lot of points there that I've certainly struggled with. Mm -hmm. You know, my nature to want to be there and support and, you know, I have a daughter homesick and wanting to be with her and, and she's, 13 she's old enough i know but wanting to be there as the mom and then you know but loving what i do and wanting to be a professional woman and learn and, and etc so 
I often think I need to get out of my own way. I also need to maybe retrain people, uh, society, other women, other men, whoever. You know, it's it's it feels like there's just a cauldron of things going on right now for us as mm -hmm. professional women and moms and working to break through right to that change. Right. And I think getting to a point where you know your limitations. I feel like that's where I in the last few years especially with the kids, you know, now the kids are older, it's harder to know your limitations if you have an infant. But just telling the kids, you don't know. I, I can't do that. Whether it be, hey, let's go to Fright Fest. I'm not doing that today. I've had a long week. Everybody's chilling out. We'll watch a movie. We'll do something else. And that's a small example. But it's, you know, you get invited to multiple dinners or happy hours or, you know, fundraising things for elections. I'm thinking of the last few weeks of my life. And, you know, you can't say yes to everything. You want to, you want to be there, but you're driving kids to soccer, you're trying to be at all these things. And at some point, you have to say no, just take a little bit of time to decompress from all of the things that you have going on. Because if you're working and you're a parent, whether it be a mom or a dad, it's just, it's the grind of things. So I think knowing your limitations in terms of your energy level and your ability to be places at 100% um, is something that, at least for me, took some time because I would always do everything and then be like, why am I so run down? Yeah, I mean, it's like setting boundaries, knowing your boundaries, setting them, sticking to them. But I feel like also not giving into the guilt mm -hmm. of trying to be, well, I have to be professional woman but i can't let mom go and i can't let this slip because you know then i'll be letting them down mm -hmm. when in actuality most of the time they're not even going to remember no. <laughs> no. whether you did or didn't do fright fest that you know october exactly. or whatever night that exactly they exactly you're so used to these uh, just people not hearing the word no um and sometimes you feel like, oh, I, I, I should go. I, I, mean, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on seeing my friends, or I don't want to miss out on that dinner, or there'd be a lot of good people to meet there for business, or whatever. Um, just getting that out of your head, like, I'm just not going to do it, and saying no. Um, I think then, you know, and you're right with the kids, like, we want to do everything. I always try to make sure I go to one party each semester, whether it be the Halloween party or the Valentine's Day party or whatever. And they know we're around, but we do carry that in our heads, especially if you're a professional and you're gone for a certain amount of time or you're working. I mean, I've had to say to my kids a lot of times, can we do this tonight? I have to work. You, know, I'm, you guys have to find something else to do. Um, and I think the way life is, it just works out that you get to that point in your career where you have to do those things and your kids are old enough to just go play. For some reason, that didn't happen to me much when they were infants, but maybe I just don't remember it. Um, it's sort of like your career path goes and you just become busier, your business gets bigger or whatever it is you're doing. And so you, by virtue of that professionally, become busier. Um, and it kind of coincides with the time frame when the children can hang, take care of themselves and do some things on their own so you can tend to those things. But I've said to myself a lot lately, especially as the kids get older, um, you know, they're not going to be around much longer. You start to think like that, just like when you hit 40, you're like, I got to retire. Um, so I, I've tried to scale it back somewhat now just to be present because all of a sudden, you know, at eight years, everybody's off to college and it's, then there'll be plenty of time to work. Right. 
I have heard somebody told me that if you pay for vacations, they'll come. That's, so maybe oh, that's there's good. That. Good. But there was something I read recently, and it's related to everything we talked about today. You know, uh, what was it? At work, they want you to work like you're not a mom. And when you're mom, they want you to be a mom like you're not working. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that really, That's really interesting duck out to me as far as I feel like we still butt our heads up against so many comparisons mm-hmm. of what we should or shouldn't be and what's right or what isn't right. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that any of that speaks to you. It yeah. certainly did when I read it. Yeah. Societal expectations are reasonable in their work expectations of people and where you have to be and when you have to do it. People that work for me, I'm always like, I don't care if you come in. Do what works for you. I will know at the end of the month if you're getting your work done, if you're billing the hours you're supposed to bill, if you're doing your job. So I don't care where you do it. And I don't know, as a female, the days that I stay home from work, I save an hour getting ready, an hour in the car. So I'm much more productive <laughs> than I am if I'm in the office. Um, there's obviously a lot to being in the office. It is a good thing, especially if you're someone like me and you're trying to train young people. But um, I think COVID was very good for that. It's just, it's just relaxed it a little bit for people and we're more um, proficient, for lack of a better word. As a woman, not having to go into the office and not having to yes. do all the hair and the makeup. It's I'm a like, real thing. Amen. You know, right. I see my husband, five seconds, some water, maybe a little right. bit, and he's done out the door. So I do think it's um, still working to add maybe more empathy to others. Or you know, sometimes he'll say, you just don't want to go out. You're antisocial. It's like, I just don't, don't want to get, get ready. ready. Yes. Like I do this all day, every day, five mm-hmm. days a week. And then I have to, I'm like, I'm backing up at least probably, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on. And then if we have to bring the kids with us, well, I have to get them ready. What level, so, right? Right, what level. It's but you're right. so true. Having that flexibility is is helpful. You said a couple of things earlier, and, and I have some notes uh, that you provided before that I want to get back to. And it's along the conversation that we're having, but you mentioned when you're marketing and trying to find clients or networking, um, also being a female trial attorney, that there are some challenges you've had to navigate that maybe the the typical male attorney has not, like being in the courtroom. What are some things that you've had to adjust or be self-aware of about how, how others might view you differently? Absolutely. Um I think that is one of the hardest things to learn as a female trial lawyer uh, that I had to learn the hard way. The first case that I tried was a car accident case where this lady claimed that she had, now it wasn't the first case I tried, it was second. She had claimed she had carpal tunnel syndrome as a result of the car accident. And just at baseline, you hear that and you go, oh, no way. No one gets carpal tunnel syndrome from an auto accident. So that's exactly what I thought. And so, you know, you go get all of this woman's prior medical records, and it says CTS all over it. So carpal tunnel syndrome, carpal tunnel syndrome. So I have her on the stand in the trial, and she had about, I think, $50,000 in medical bills. And I'm cross-examining her with these records, like, this says CTS, this says CTS. Doesn't this say that you had CTS, carpal tunnel syndrome, before this auto accident? And she said, no one ever told me that. And, you know, I did one of these, oh, no one ever told you that and walked around the courtroom. And I really went after this woman. And so 
the case was over and the jury gave her exactly the amount of her medical bills, about $50,000. And so I asked one of the jurors after the case, um, did you really think she got carpal tunnel syndrome from that car accident? And they said, oh, no, we just felt really bad for her. And I thought, that's because I totally went after this woman. And, you know, then if you, as you go on, I, we've done focus groups and things on larger cases where they say, you know, jurors are very perceptive of women and how they cross-examine women um, and female trial lawyers and what you wear and your makeup and your earrings and all of those things that men don't have to think anything about any of that. And so... I have told my partners before, you know, when I'll be talking about a case, I'm getting ready to try, like, what do you think I should ask this expert while he's on the stand? And one of my partners, Brad, would say, oh, I would go say this, 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 and this, and this. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do that because I'm a female. It's just a different approach that you have to take. You know, I don't want to use the B word, but you have to, you, you come up to that line, but once you cross it, all of a sudden that jury is against you. And so I've always taken the position, and I tell my clients this too, I just don't want to be a factor in your case. It should be about the facts and you. And you should not want to be a factor either because cases are won and lost on the people involved. So um, I think it's very difficult as a female trial lawyer to be aggressive but not to be perceived as the B word to the jury um, and have that negatively impact your case. And... I've had I've had other female trial lawyers tell me this. Oh, you know, I tried this case with so and so, and I said, "Oh, how'd she do?" And she would say, "Oh, well, she really hasn't figured it out yet. She's super aggressive with witnesses, and it's, you know, sometimes you have to be." But um, I will never cut off a witness or tell them that you know I try to be way more um, polite than I think my male counterparts have to be, and it plays well for both. But uh, you watch the stuff on TV and you want to come in and be that person and then it totally backfires. So, uh, yeah, I think that's very I think that's very difficult. And it's probably true in a lot of industries to the marketing side of things. Oh, it's super difficult. I have male clients that, you know, and now I'm divorced or I would love to take them to lunch. But you don't want to give any sort of impression that it's anything but a business lunch. Um, and I'm sure women run into that in every field. But I'll often ask one of my partners, will you come with me? So then it's it's fine. And I don't think the other person thinks that. Um, but when you go to dinners and then things like that, which we do on a, on a regular basis, I travel out of town and meet with clients at insurance companies and all that stuff. I usually bring someone with me just so it's not uncomfortable. And that's unfortunate that our male counterparts can just go. Um Except for when I have female clients, then it's fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> then yeah. it's fine. I go by myself. Yeah, it, it sounds like, one, you found out, I think this is helpful for anybody, you got feedback, right? So that right. first trial or the, the one you talked about, you asked and sought, you know, information into how you could be better. And so that gave you, you were able to pivot faster. So... I just writing down a lot of things that you've said today, but that was one, be open to asking for and getting right. feedback and processing and changing. Um, but you're right also in just the different way people are, are, men and women are treated differently in different situations. Did you find if it was you against you uh, interrogating or asking questions to a male, 
witness versus a female witness were there any differences or oh, was yeah. it just you in general you couldn't cross that line no no yes i um i'm totally different with male witnesses than i am with women witnesses you can be more aggressive absolutely um much of it for some reason and it's people's just perception it's not you know the psychology is there we've we've had focus groups and these experts say these people think this way and they don't even know they're doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so when it's a woman on woman thing, it it's just a woman on woman thing. If it's a male um, witness, I it, I it depends on the witness. If it's a if somebody is not, you know, if somebody's more aggressive with me, I can go back at them. Now if they're very meek and quiet, I'm not going to go after them because then you still have that. Oh, look at her you know, Wicked Witch of the West coming in here. Um, so, but yeah, I, I do think you can be more aggressive with males, and I and I am, depending on the witness. It almost sounds like mirroring. They talk about when you're in mm -hmm. conversations or interactions, try to mirror right. the other person's behavior. So if you have somebody that's aggressive, you can lean that way. Uh, if you don't, you need mm -hmm. to back off. And then sounds like you've learned that women in general, you need to maybe tiptoe around right. a little bit more because of the perception right. from others. And you shift it, at least from a trial standpoint, I shift, what I do is get what I need out of the witness without being super aggressive unless it's called for. I mean, if they're coming back at me with nonsense, then I will. And then I just shift it into my argument. So if it's me just arguing to the jury, at that point of the trial, hopefully if I've established some credibility with them and then I can do that, it, it keeps me from having to go after witnesses um, which just isn't, you know, it's just, it, it's a mental turnoff for people <clears throat> when you're a woman and they don't really recognize that they're doing it. But if you get your facts and then argue it, um, I do get a lot of, I feel like the flip side of it as a female trial lawyer is you get, you get trust quickly with jurors, as long as everything you say plays out the way you say it's supposed to play out. So I try to establish credibility with jurors initially and that usually then can carry into whatever i'm arguing at the end and i think that helps with success um and i think we i don't know maybe because you trust your mom i, I don't right. know uh we get that a little bit quicker as long as you know something doesn't blow up in your face <laughs> yeah yeah it's an interesting point that i'm sure there's studies done mm -hmm. on why women maybe like you said maybe it's our nature or maybe it's our facial structure or posture, what could it be? But it sounds like, you know, kind of managing people. So you're you're not managing the jurors or the witnesses, but you're managing, controlling how you interact with them. And then you talked about training mm -hmm. uh, new attorneys. So as a female boss leader, what are some of the challenges you've had or what are some of the things you've learned to how to navigate without coming across as that sure be i'm laughing because i'm like oh this is really bringing out all the challenges i've approached through my career <laughs> so uh managing people i've had the same same problems i have definitely grown in that regard and i'm much better at it than i initially was as a partner you know I often joke about this, boy, wouldn't it be nice to just go back to being a lawyer and working on your cases, doing your thing, and not having other people work for you, and it just doesn't work that way. Um, but when I first started managing people, I was definitely um, 
you know, I definitely was harder to work for. I, I, you know, aggressive is not the right word, but unapproachable, I think is a good word. And, um, and it, it's not personal. It's just that I get super serious when I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm very busy. And so young people are like, oh God, I don't want to have to even go knock on her door. Um, we have an open door policy and it's, I'm, I'm was still unapproachable. So, um, I've definitely made that a goal of mine. And I think, uh, people that work for me now, it's totally different than it was when I first started as a partner. Um, because you, number one, you expect people to be the lawyer you are and they're not. And number two, you're not used to managing people. So you're used to going in and you have your list of whatever it is you're going to do for the day, or you have your job and you don't have time to meet with someone else. And so then, but you know, you have to. And so then that level of irritation shows on your face <laughs> when they walk in your office. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I'm, I certainly think it's a function of being a female because I have, not that men don't have a lot on their mind, but when I was you know, first became a partner, I had real young kids and I was managing a caseload and now I'm trying to help other people and, you know, you just don't have time and then you become stressed and then you act like a jerk. And so I've definitely figured out a way to um, not be that way. And I think part of it is uh, making yourself available socially outside of the office to the people that work for you so that they know you're actually normal and you're, you know, nice and <laughs> Um, I remember I had some wine with a few of my associates years ago, and this gal was, she was a little bit older, but she was a new lawyer. She said, she says, my gosh, you're so much fun. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so not fun at the office. So I've tried to like, you know, when people come in my office now, I try to have some small talk and not make it so serious. And, you know, it often, for me now, I've said this a lot lately in the last few years, life's too short. And I think you realize that when I was young, it was always like, you know, everything has to be like that. And it really doesn't. Everything's going to be fine. The cases are going to be fine. Um, I think your kids get older and you start thinking about life and you realize, you know, it doesn't have to be that serious. Uh, but I, I certainly, and I, I see this with my male counterparts too. Managing people is very difficult, um, especially if you're a busy person. Um, teaching them is a whole nother thing. And a lot of people don't have that ability either. So trying to figure out how to be good at all of those things, it was hard for me. It was very hard for me. I think I'm better at it now. You'll have to ask the people that work for me. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> have I have to go for another happy hour. I, exactly, I think. But I definitely struggled with that, um, you know, coming off as, you know, a witch initially when people come in your office and need help with certain things. And... You know, the men can be as irritated as you are, but it just doesn't come off the same way as we know. So, yeah, I think, and probably most women who have people that work for them, I think a good word for a strong woman who's managing people is probably how to not be unapproachable. Because it doesn't mean you're, it's personal, it doesn't mean anything, it just means you're so busy that everyone's afraid to come talk to you. And that's not a good place to be if you're trying to manage and teach people. Um, so I had to overcome that for sure. And it sounds like, you know, the way to do that was 
kind of time and age mm-hmm. and just saying i don't have to be it doesn't have to be that rat race all the time right. i don't have to be killing myself and being a little bit more social right. or less always about the business right and some Work personal say you know as a defense lawyer you're always like oh you know you it's almost like uh, what i have to do is value cases so i'm valuing what's the death of a 19 year old and you have to you know, I'm telling an insurance company what I think that's worth. And it sounds um, crass almost, but it's part of what we do. And I have to continually remind myself when I try those cases that um, the people on the other side, these are real people, these are real losses. You know, this is not just another case. This is their child. Um, And so sometimes, you know, as a defense lawyer, you get in that mindset where it's, you know, you, you almost lose your level of compassion because you're looking at things. And sometimes it's really hard. You know, you see pictures and my kids always ask me about my cases. And a lot of times if we go to dinner, I tell them the facts of the case and I have them tell me who they think's at fault or who should win. It's really fun, actually. <laughs> Building some little attorneys yeah. or dentists. And then I, and then, you know, as we go along, I'll throw in like another fact and they'll go, oh, wait, never mind. It's, it's that guy's fault. And I don't ever tell them who I represent. They're, they're now smart enough to figure out that I represent the defendant. But, um, you know, so you think about things that way and you, you tend to lose your level of compassion just towards the facts of your cases. And then it carries over in your life. So it's like, you know, these people coming into my office, whether it be a secretary or a paralegal or a lawyer, you know, you have to remember, like, they're not, this isn't just a job. They're not minions. These are people, and, you know, sometimes you forget to just treat people that way throughout everything you do. So I I try very hard now to be like that. And now that I've tried cases where, you know, the, one of the cases I tried last year, this lady lost her daughter. And, you know, I did get up at the end of the case and tell the jury that, she, you know, she didn't, shouldn't get any money in whatever my arguments were. And so at, when you're done with that and the jury leaves, you know, I always go up to people. I went up to this woman and I said, I'm so sorry for your loss. Please understand, I'm just doing my job. And she was like, oh, no, she was great. She's like, I get it, I get it. But you have to remember that, I think. And if you get stuck in like, oh, this is a, you know, nonsense back injury or a nonsense this, then everything like that is in your job is treated that way. And so um, I think I've stopped thinking like that and more like okay everything all of this is personal to everybody even if it's not to me yeah and that mindset of if you let i don't want to say negativity but but that harsher way of Mm -hmm. thinking if you keep that going in every part of your life then that ends up taking over versus it's that kind of reminding yourself that mindset training to switch it off or right okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but there is another right. side to this. And how do you keep that right. training your brain? To you not- know, you, you roll into the office and you're so serious. I've got all these things to do. Just the minimal, hey, how you doing? Good morning, you know, saying hello to everybody it goes a long way. Yeah, because I think it goes back to that quote, but for everybody, right? Like if I'm at the office, I'm still a mom. I'm still a parent. Mm-hmm. I still care. Right. My family is super important to me. My son uh, got a call at four o'clock last Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, whatever it was. And I knew new driver out of school oh, early. No. I just knew it wasn't bad. <laughs> Good. But, and it was just him in a light post and it'll probably kill me <laughs> that this was ever out there. But as soon as it called and I was with 
uh, somebody on my team, I said, you know, hey, I hate to do this. I would never do this, but I have a feeling and I took it. Uh And uh, of course, it was what I thought. But yeah, you're still parent, mom, life, whatever. And when you're at home, yeah, sometimes you still have things that are pulling you for work. And I think a lot of what you said today, I mean, there were so many good nuggets of sharing and just putting it out there you know what you do Mm -hmm. the struggles not trying to pretend that you're perfect in every aspect and others will will join you and help in and pitch in and um you know they'll give you some compassion you talked about boundaries know your limitations you can't do everything a hundred percent all the time and so as part of that managing the expectations that you put out there with others um you know maybe even giving the whys look i really would love to help you but I know I can't give you my full effort in explaining it, getting feedback, being approachable, compassion. I don't even know if I can ask, like, are there any other (laughs) tips? You said so many good things. I'm looking at uh, some of our notes, but, you know, so many things, whether it's, you know, male, female, as a mom, as a professional, as a leader, as a not, so many great things to help people be better. I think knowing, too, all of that's a process, you know. You pick up those things as you go along. You're you're gonna probably have more challenges as a woman if you're a professional as you go along. But the longer you do it, you pick up things like that. I just need to be a little more like this or a little more like that, and it will make life so much easier. But I still have those problems too. And your kids call and you're in the middle of something, and I used to just don't not even take it, and now. I don't do that. I I say that I'm sorry. This is my son. If like, because because don't you think to yourself, if this person really thinks badly of me that I'm stopping this because of my children, like it's almost worse if I don't take the call. Right. But it takes you a while in your career when you initially start. You're like, I can't. I have to pretend like I don't have kids or whatever. Um, I think that's part of the process. You know, then you figure it out. But yeah, you. The strength, I mean, the confidence to give yourself permission to do that. Yeah, so now I'm doing. I'm setting this boundary. I am gonna. Yeah, take this call. Yeah, so I'm almost ashamed that there were times that I would just be like, "Oh, it'll be fine. I'll just wait till this deposition's over, and then I'll take the call." You know, it's like, yeah, you should do that. Well, it goes I back think, to the "Don't call your dad at the right, office." Exactly. Those rules have not carried over. <laughs> I can say that. I remember that. It was like, you do not call unless there is like life or limb mm-hmm. problem. Uh, other than that, figure it out and don't break anything. Right. And I, my dad would answer the phone the same way probably I acted when people first came into my office. He would go, John Lawler. Like, oh my God, he's so mad. Why did I call him? And you know, I'm calling to ask for something, so it's probably not a good time. So you mentioned that uh, attorneys often aren't sure if they want to be a trial lawyer. Uh, they take some time do some things. When was it that you figured out this is what I want to do and I can be good at it? Sure. So um, the way it typically works is you try a case with your second chair case. So your more senior partner will be the main trial lawyer and you will be the second chair. And second chair is super fun because you don't really have to like do the hard stuff where you question witnesses. You just come and make sure all the exhibits are there and but you get to sit there at the table and watch everything happen. So I was trying a case with my boss. I don't think I was a partner yet. And it was in Jefferson County. In the week, I'll give you the two second cliff notes on the facts of this case. But this is where you you become an expert in everything you do, depending on what the case is about. This case, I represented a company that was a concrete pumping company. So 
they have a truck and a pump. And what they do is they show up at job sites and they pump the concrete from the truck. Like say you're going to put a patio in the back and they don't want to drive the concrete truck back. So they don't bring the concrete. They're literally a pumping company and it's a particular thing. And it's these pressurized pumps that pushes the concrete through and someone has to be at the other end to like lay the concrete. So these people were pouring a basement and they decided they were going to do the concrete work themselves. My client shows up. He's one guy. He's just the pump. So they have their 21-year-old son moving the concrete around and he moves the hose and it kinks. And so when the concrete comes through, it flips back and breaks this kid's arm and his elbow. So they sue the concrete company. So we're in trial on this case. And you know, our position in the case was you should have had people who knew what they were doing running the concrete as it came out of the pump. Their position is that the pump should never kink, in long and short. So the week before the trial, there is a witness that I realized we didn't depose. So I went and took this kid's deposition, and he was a friend of the 21-year-olds who was there helping with the um, pumping situation. And what he told me in his deposition was that essentially the kid was being careless and not doing what he was supposed to do. And so then we go to trial, and I see the kid in the hallway. And typically, because this case was in Jefferson County and these people were from Illinois, you wouldn't have witnesses come in live from another state. I mean, you can't subpoena them to do that. So I'm thinking, why is this kid here? So I told my boss, you know, that kid I deposed last week is here. And he goes, well, go ask him what he's going to say. And I'm like, he's friends with the plaintiff. He's not going to talk to me. So I go, go up to him, and I said, are you going to change your story from last week? And the kid says, well, I, I misremembered what happened. And I thought, oh, great. So I went and told my boss. I said, he's going to change his story. And he goes, well, you better get ready. You're cross-examining him. I went, what? And so this was at the lunch break, and that kid was going on right after lunch. So keep in mind, I've never not only tried my own case, but I've never even crossed a witness in trial, and I'm about to do so in front of my boss with no time to prepare. So it was a great situation. Um so while the kid was on the stand um, doing his direct exam, he did change all of his testimony. So I made some notes, and I get up and I cross-examine this kid, and I, I'm so into it. I have all of the testimony up, how he's changed his story, how the mom asked him to come, and all of these things. And I'm just walking around asking question after question. I'm getting great answers. I mean, this kid looks like a liar. I turn around, the kid is totally crying. <laughs> I drove the kid to tears. And so I walk back to the council table where my boss is sitting and he goes, ask him if he thinks it's all his fault. And I'm like, oh, that's a good question. I go, are you upset because you actually think this whole thing is your fault? And he couldn't answer and he kept bawling. And I just said, he, and then my boss goes, sit down. And I go, I don't have any further questions. And I sat down and I was like, oh my God, I crushed that. I can't believe it. And so we ended up winning the case. But the takeaway was my boss left the trial and he called Brad Hansman, one of my partners, and he said, she's ready. She's ready. She crossed this kid and she drove him to tears and didn't even know it. <laughs> so, that was one of my one of my favorite stories. And so now everyone's like, you didn't make anyone cry again, did you? Now I know what to ask you every <laughs> right. time. Like, no, don't make me right. cry, Jackie. Don't make anyone cry. It didn't help my reputation, you know. I'll just bring a water bottle and squeeze mm -hmm. it on there every mm -hmm. time I know you're coming. I'll be like, yeah, ah. so... Anyway, that was a fun situation. And it, the takeaway from it in the office was Jackie made the witness cry. But it sounds so. like some of the conversations we've had that 
that worked in your favor. It did. Versus, it did. you know, being too aggressive. It, it was because in this particular case, and keep in mind, that was before I tried my own case. So I was just going on basically adrenaline and whatever I could come up with in five minutes. Um, but I think it worked in that case because it was such a flip of the, t I mean, it was a totally different story. And I had just taken this kid's deposition a week ago. And so I started it all off with, well, this is what you said, and this is what you said, but I started off with, why are you here? Because I knew they couldn't subpoena him to be there. And he said, oh, the plaintiff's mom asked me to come. I Ooh. said, oh, you know, so the jury was like, oh, great. And I said, and what you're telling us today is not what you told me Tuesday when you were under oath before Mrs. So-and-so called you. And so, you know, at that point, it was just like, all right, let's go through each thing you said Tuesday. Let's go through what you said now. And I think... I don't know why he started crying, but he did. And waterworks. <laughs> right. It didn't work against me. We won the case. so. But I made it a point not to try to make anyone cry after that. If you could think back to your 35 trial history, what's one big case that stands out to you? I tried one last year. All right. Let's see. It's 2022. 2021. Um and there's a lot of legal reasons why this was a bigger deal to me in terms of insurance coverage that'll bore everybody. But um, this particular case was followed by the heads of multiple insurance companies. And um, the the ask at trial was $2 million in actual damages and $5 million in punitive damages. So had I lost, um, it was going to be bad. And, and I had some bad facts. I represented a young man who had drank some alcohol and got in the car with his girlfriend and a couple other friends in, in um, rural Missouri and decided to go out and do what, what they call hill jumping in his truck. And so he went over this hill at 117 miles an hour and got air and hit a tree as he came over the other side. And the girlfriend was... Um, ejected out the passenger window and severed in half. He killed one of the kids in the back, and then the other kid survived. Um, and I, and so, you know, the pictures, you get this kind of case, you know, this is bad. Half of this young girl's body's over here, the other half's over here. She was 19. Um, and the insurance company did some things on the front end where this kid had a low limits policy where they didn't pay it. So ultimately arguably, they would have had to pay whatever the judgment was because of their actions. And so I knew when I got the case, I was going to have to try it. And I didn't have a lot of great fa facts. Uh, my client went was charged with two counts of felony manslaughter, went to, uh, was given probation. Part of his probation was not to drink. He went ahead and drank. So he violated his probation. And all of this happened during the course of the lawsuit. So I had quite the uphill battle on just keeping the verdict at a reasonable range. And I would say it was like a week and a half before trial, I came up with a theory, like I got to come up with a theme, which I do this in every case, but what is my theme in this case? And my only good facts really were these were kids just doing what kids do. You know, this wasn't a kid who got drunk and drove down the road and hit a family of four on their way home from church. Different case, right? This was his girlfriend. So you can't imagine he's torn up about it. And really nice kid. Um, I visited him in jail, uh, became very close with him. Of course, obviously, he sat with me through the trial. Um, anyway, long story short, I told the jury to give the lady $50,000. And they ended up giving her forty, 
after they asked for $7 million, And they gave this girl a percentage of fault, which they should, for getting in the car with him. I mean, it's not like she didn't know what they were going to do. Um, there were some uphill battles on the evidence. The judge wouldn't let us say hill jumping, which I could never figure out why. Uh, but the jury figured it out. It's not like everybody got in this car and all of a sudden this kid just goes 117 miles an hour over the hill. So a lot of good things happened during that trial that I wasn't anticipating. And so the net verdict ended up being $28,000. And so needless to say, that verdict came back late on a Friday and I was driving back and the I had told the lady at the insurance company the ask was $7 million, the jury's out, we're waiting. And she was like, oh, my God, what do you think? And I don't ever say, I don't know. <laughs> so always what to say, I don't know. You never know what's going to happen back there. But the jury was back there fighting. The judge said, this could be good for you. They're back there fighting. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, they came back with that verdict. And I had emails from the heads of reinsurance companies and insurance companies that were following this case. Like, what? How did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. But probably one of the biggest wins of my career. And, you know, not a, I was never going to get a zero, but I was like, give her 50 grand. And they, uh, they gave her 40. So I think, you know, they bought into the theme, which is this isn't a situation where somebody should be made wealthy. We were all kids. We've all done dumb stuff when we were 19 and 20 that we go, man, you know, and this is what I asked in Vordire, you know, how many people have done something where they look back and go, I can't believe I made it through that when you were a kid. And, you know, you had all kinds of good stories from people like, oh, you know, one guy said he drove his car up a tree and got a DWI. And, you know, so I think they bought into the theme. And what's a big judgment against this young kid going to do? You know, he's still in jail. So, um, yeah, that was a big, that was a big win for me. So Wow. Amazing yeah. story. Yeah. I thought she'd get, I told him the case, I, I, they probably would have paid her half a million dollars at one point. Um, you just never know. So, yeah. And then it went up on appeal and it settled, so all is good. <laughs> Going down in, in lore. I just got as... a few gray hairs from that one, but that's okay. <laughs> that's what, what the hairdresser's for. <laughs> exactly. We can cover that up. Um, you you talked about working, that you're, basically you work directly, your boss mm -hmm. was one of the managing partners of the original firm you worked for. Would you consider him or were there others that were great mentors or advisors to you along your career path? Yes, I would say he was my main mentor and advisor and and probably Brad Hansman, two of the best trial lawyers you'll ever see. And they just have a mind to think like that. I got to try more cases with Russ <clears throat> just by virtue of my age. Brad's only a couple years older than me, but we've had a few cases together. Um, I now, I talk to Brad about a lot. I still go to Brad when I'm getting ready to try a case. Um, it's just that way of thinking. Or they'll think of something, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? Uh, a lot of it's in the presentation. And then, you know, as you start to have success and in, in win cases, you realize where you're getting that. I mean, I'm doing the same things they did. Um, just funny things you can do in closing arguments. Like Brad told me one time he used the story of the red herring uh, in his closing argument. I didn't, I mean, I know what a red herring is. I've used that word, those words before. Um, 
but I didn't really know the story behind it, and I'm not going to bore you with it, but look it up. It's it's interesting, but he used that in a closing argument, and I'm like, that's great. You know, it's a basically where the other lawyer's telling you to look at something shiny over here because they don't want you to look at what really is going on in the case. Um, but he actually went through the story of the red herring and like things like that that you're like, I'm going to use that. It's got to be the right case, but... Um, you know, I try to do that for young lawyers. Like, come watch a trial. You don't know what you don't know. One of my youngest associates just tried a case with me a few weeks ago, and every day he was like, oh, my God, that was awesome. It's like you don't – you think you know it, and you've been practicing law for a long time. If you've never sat through a trial and actually seen how things play out in your case, you don't really know what you're doing. Um, and I've had a lot of failures to – which have taught me a lot. You know, I've taken depositions in cases that my boss has tried, and there's nothing worse than two weeks before trial when he's reading your deposition goes, why didn't you ask this? Why didn't you ask that? And you're like, oh, my God. You know, so that's how you learn. Um, so, yeah, I would say those two have been my 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 main mentors and, and still are. So watching others uh, attending or being, you know, part of the actual events asking questions and being willing to try things yeah and know you're gonna probably make mistakes but you can't you won't get better if you don't even go out there and exactly gotta go do position it and miss a few questions that's right <laughs> it was a trip and fall and i didn't ask the person what they slipped on i'm like oh my god but that's the kind of mistake you make as a young lawyer and you go okay yeah i should have asked that question <laughs> but and you find out three years later because you take the deposition the case doesn't go to trial till three years later and what you know then is way more than you knew when you took that deposition so you'll read it yourself and go yeah that was a bad deposition i definitely missed some stuff there so yeah but yeah you got to be willing to do it anybody that you were able to look up to so again sounds like you learned a lot trial by fire mm -hmm. you know in a situation how you learned to adapt yourself as a female in those roles was it truly trial by fire uh putting yourself in there and adapting or did you have a mentor from that standpoint who said look this is the way it's going to go down you're gonna have to pull back a little bit when you're I am um, so I have a part an old partner she's at a different firm now but we're about She's maybe four years older than me, and we were the two main, well, we were the two only female partners in our group at the firm. She ended up going to a different firm recently, but when I would try a case, and she would try a case, she's a very good traveler, we would talk about that kind of thing, and she would often say, for example, that case I tried, she she talked to me through a lot of themes and stuff like that at lunches, like, here's what we here's what you should say. Here's how you should say it. She was very helpful. Um, and we would have the same discussion, you know, she would say, gosh, these guys don't know how hard it is to do this job and be a mom, you know, those kinds of things. It's good to have a friend. Um, but yes, she ran into the similar issues. And um, she was the one who was like, watch your jewelry. And that was a result of a focus group she did on a case where the the jurors noted in their paper something about her earrings. I was like, oh, my God. So I, when I try cases, I typically have on, you know, a turtleneck in my suit and very little jewelry, very little makeup. I just don't want to be a factor. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. And here you are, as successful as you are, having those added layers right? of challenges that some a lot of your counterparts Right. don't have to to deal with but now you're there i would think it's 
probably a a joy to now be able to share that with women coming up absolutely in your law yeah. firms and say i've been there i right. can help you and you have tools that can make you very good at this that they might not have so it's not all negative so um especially that compassion side of that trust side that that you can establish with a jury if you do it right um which will help bring you success i think so it almost sounds like they forever they've talked about work on your weaknesses work on your weaknesses mm -hmm. but it, maybe it's as you just said no here's the skills here's the natural traits you have let's lean into right. that absolutely build that up and be good at that yeah yeah what is it like at a big law firm I mean, you've been working for a while, I'm sure, mm -hmm. and there's probably some idea, okay, I, I, I might be up for partner. I mean, w what is that like, especially with, as you said, becoming the youngest female partner there? Yeah, so I, you know, the typical track is five to seven years, and I was, um, my boss nominated me to be a partner after four years, and so I was not expecting it just because I knew the typical track was, um, and so... Obviously, I mean, I was young and I didn't know what came with it other than that it was early and I was young and I was probably going to make some more money, which was all, all good. Um, but I had tried a couple of cases at that point. Back then we used to try, we used to require people to have trials before they could become partner. We don't do that anymore. But um, so I had tried some of my own cases and I had some success. Uh, but like I said, I anticipated waiting another year. So I was surprised um, and obviously you know, in the throes of it. And I do really like what I do. So I was excited about it. Yeah, it was it was cool. I was, I think it's to me one of the biggest accomplishments because, you know, of a firm that size to make it early outside of their typical time frame. you know, there's a lot of red tape at these big firms. So it told me people had to think pretty highly of me to agree to that um you know and then you have to get approval by the board of directors and the shareholders to be made a principal so um yeah i was i was super honored and surprised what do you think led to that early nomination uh, was it solely i proved myself in court and on cases do you think there were other things that you did or or part of who you were yeah i mean i was always you know you know, I always, always billing a lot of hours. I worked a lot. I worked very hard. Um, and I had good results. And I had a lot of good results with my boss. And since my boss, my direct boss, was one of the main people at the firm, one of the founding partners of the firm, um, certainly that's a benefit, right? So when he says something about someone, it carries a lot of weight. And so I think that I had definitely proven myself and... Um, Part of it in his mind was probably keeping me around, you know, so I wouldn't go to another firm. So, um, yeah, and then I think he, you know, he had to convince them as to why why it was appropriate to do it as early as it was. And I assume that that's part of it. But the numbers, you know, so even if I don't work for someone, the numbers by my name were the best of anybody in that class. <clears throat> you know, so I was always billing the most and... Um, getting a lot of good results that were publicized within the firm. So I think that probably had a lot to do with it. And yeah, they don't want you to leave. I mean, that's there's always another firm that would love to hire you, especially right around that time when you've been out four or five years. So so you, you become the youngest female partner there, 
fast forward to recently there's there's a divorce of the law firm there's a breakup yeah yeah uh what went into deciding to leave and and several of you starting a new firm yeah so the the four names on the wall those four guys um started the process and then they brought myself and another partner in uh, we were all shareholders at brown and james so we were owners um and so there's different rules you know i have a lot of people ask oh did you have a non-compete the law doesn't work that way but you do have like partnership agreements and shareholder agreements that you sign so that you can't you know take off in the middle of a lease and leave them with all this rent so that's why the timing was towards the end of the lease so there wouldn't be such a huge penalty and had we signed a new lease then you you really can't leave with that majority of people now we've let you know people have left on their own and it doesn't really matter but taking you know what was 40 percent of the firm's revenue and people um is a different is a different scenario so the timing was right um i recall the five of us walking into the managing partner's office and handing in our resignation in his face i, I you know it seemed like he was going to cry and you know was there anything we can do to talk you out of this but at that point the location had been secured and um for me as you know i mean it's a lifestyle change the location is huge with my kids being in school out west it's in west county so not going downtown and our practices were so separate anyway it's was like what's the point of this um the sad part is is the history of brown and james and and what what if you say to someone i work at brown and james that carries something with it so um now i'm trying to figure out how to answer the phone because i used to say jackie kinder brown and james and i'm like waters wolf but i don't know what you say um, I, now i just say jackie kinder um but yeah so you know that part of it was sad but the um, main impetus around it was, well, look, we're separate anyway, and if they really don't want to leave the city, which we had approached them about all of us going to the county, but um, they have reasons why they wanted to stay in St. Louis City. So it was really a virtue of a function of location for, for anything else. And we think, you know, we're putting, we built this new office. It's going to have a little bocce ball court and a putting green and a bar, and we're trying to make it, you know, um, this is a tough job for people. And so we're trying to attract, you know, a caliber of people that um, want to go to work and look forward to where they go to work. So we're trying to set up a different, less formal environment than the old firm. Be so, more approachable. Back to that, right? We should all have that on our walls in our office. So that's that's the main thing behind it. And I'm really excited about it. Our office isn't done yet. So check with me in a year and I'll be more excited. <laughs> <laughs> so. but either way you're uh like you said your work-life balance will be a little bit better right because yeah that trip it's, to downtown uh, totally get it strive for that right right any last words uh before we we wrap up today no other than thanks for the introduction that's the nicest anybody's ever introduced me well, and it's it truly, I mean, you walk into a room and it's just I don't know, it's this confidence, this swagger, but yet it's not an ego thing. It's oh, truly it's like you've got the big smile on your face and in your eyes and you will walk right up to somebody and ask them something particular about them and how are you doing and what's going on. And it's like so you, you some of these stories you've I think you've definitely learned how to be that uh stronger person yet you've sanded off yeah. <laughs> the edges if that's yeah. a good way to put it. Well, thanks for this. It was kind of cathartic. I learned all the struggles and I feel like I've overcome a lot. 
<laughs> Yo, you certainly have. Well, so also circling back to what you do. Um, yeah. So who are the people you help? Where do they find you? Um, everything oh, sure. Business. Um, yeah, I'll keep it brief. I So I represent individuals and businesses and civil disputes. Um, our new office, I'm super excited, is at 40 and 141. Um, and I'm hired a lot by... Like I represent Quick Trip, I represent a lot of um, car manufacturers, Volkswagen, Jaguar, um, and then insurance companies hire me. I do represent individuals. Um, since I've been representing car dealers, now they call me individually outside of their insurance, so I've been doing that. So it's kind of a new, fun area of my practice that's I've developed over the last five years with them being insured. Um, but yeah, so people get sued, I'm happy to help. And if all else fails, become a dentist. Right. <laughs> so Jackie Kinder, partner, Waters, Wolf, Bub, and Hansman. Where can they easily find you? Sure. Our new website is um, www.bhlaw.com. It's Waters, Wolf, Bub, Hansman. And you can find me on, I'm on LinkedIn too. And um, I think that's it. I managed to make it this far, not being on Facebook. So I'm not on Facebook, which is good. Congrats as an attorney. Yes, I'm sure there's not where a, I need to be. Right, right. Well, before we go today, just wanted to say again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to share uh, words of wisdom, learned lessons, mistakes, overcoming them. Anything, any last words you want to say before we, we wrap up and again, say thank you to Jackie for joining us today? No, thanks so much for having me. I think all the topics we discussed are important. You know, hopefully um, it helps people. And I think um, fostering the discussion helps all of us. So thanks again for having me. Great way to end it. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks. This concludes another episode of the She Lift Project podcast. To hear more episodes of the show, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about our mission of helping women reach higher levels of success, visit sheliftproject.com and sign up to receive the latest news, ebooks, videos, and more.